Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Has cybercrime become a service? Criminal groups are increasingly turning their attention to cyber. And one reason is that technical skills are no longer needed to launch cyber or phishing attacks. Instead, anyone with cash or more likely cryptocurrency can buy malware, zero-day exploits and phishing templates on the dark web. And criminals, as well as nation-states, can even commission their own malicious code and rent botnet armies to launch attacks. Why then are we seeing cybercrime evolve in this way? Jack Chapman is VP of Threat Intelligence at Egress. He's been monitoring the expansion of cybercrime as a service as crime groups move their attentions online. We asked him what's driving the growth. Yes, it's a really interesting trend within the industry. Um, I know that we see it every day from protecting our customers by actually going out onto the darknet, the hacking forums, and seeing these criminals selling their services. They're actually selling not only the lists for potential people to attack, and the breakdown of they're very targeted lists at times. You can buy lists of people who have fallen for phishing attacks before, people in certain verticals, people of certain seniority in organizations. But that stretches all the way through purchasing ready-to-go kits. And really, I think the reason why this shift has happened is the criminals recognize that they can earn more money for themselves individually by creating the tools needed to enable the other cyber criminals. And for those criminals, it makes sense to, to spend that sort of initial capital to be able to perform more accurate, more sophisticated, more successful attacks for their return on investment. And it has, sort of, from what we've seen, involved into very much an ecosystem where innovation is occurring at a startling rate. And it's across all actors. Some people would think that it's okay. Maybe this is only sort of tied to the nation state level. But it's the fact that it's permutated down through all levels of these cyber criminals, all the way from your sort of organized criminal gangs down to individuals, sort of teenagers in their bedrooms who can very easily purchase it themselves. And for me, that's really worrying because it essentially upskills the entire cybercrime ecosystem, making it easier, faster, and more successful. You describe it as an ecosystem. It's also been described as a marketplace. Is that what you're seeing, that actually vulnerabilities and attack tools are being bought and sold quite openly? Yes, and it's sort of startlingly amounts of those tools that are coming out and the sort of wide range as well. It's very much the case of anyone can put something up for sale. It is almost like Amazon for cybercrime on there. Like I know in the broader sort of criminal ecosystem, we talk about Silk Road and where you can purchase illicit goods. That's exactly the same for cybercrime. And that ranges from either you buy something off the shelf or you can request a custom commission of if you want a tool to do a certain job, you can request it. So what type of attacks are we seeing being traded in this way? The most common type is what I would call pixel-perfect phishing attacks and templates. So essentially, using this template, I could perform a wide-scale phishing campaign within five minutes that is essentially identical to, for instance, a Microsoft login page or a DHL delivery. Those sort of well-known brands that everyone uses 
and they can successfully launch an attack from that. The worrying thing for me within these attacks is the level of sophistication with them, where they, for instance, say, guaranteed not to be caught by Microsoft, for instance, in terms of their security layers. So it's that anti-detection technology they're baking into their goods. Indeed, because for quite a while, phishing was relatively easy to spot because a lot of the emails were quite rubbish. In fact, most spam emails were just not very well constructed. You know, the language was bad. The URLs would be incorrect. Uh, company logos would be missing or incorrect. Uh, so you, do, you could train people to spot them. Uh, so is what they're doing then creating as you say, templates, uh, creating malware that is much harder to detect either by systems or by humans? Very much so. They've, they've really professionalised the phishing market and it is one of the big shifts within phishing. It's sort of that innovation that the attackers are using is ahead of the traditional security solutions. And for this, as you say, you've correctly identified previously, training was enough. Training could spot these things. However, where even for myself, where I see two emails side by side and they look identical. And another worrying trend is the thought of, people call it different names, but essentially dynamic attacks, where when you click on a link from an attacker, it will actually look up who, who you are. It will do an MX lookup, find out what systems you use and tailor the attack to you individually. And it's this trend towards almost automated spear phishing we're starting to see come through which in the next sort of 12 to 24 months, I think it's going to have another large impact in the market. Which ties into the potential use of AI and machine learning in, in offensive cyber, which we can come back to if we have time. But the other aspect to this is ransomware, which is the one that certainly businesses are very worried about at the moment. It seems to be growing at pace. Uh, are we seeing ransomware attacks being traded in the same way? I mean, phishing to some extent you know, does act as a precursor to ransomware as well. So I appreciate there is a continuum here, but are we seeing people developing ransomware toolkits and then selling them on the dark web? Very much. So you've got ransomware, malware, worms, essentially any illicit software and technology is being sold. And that's where it's almost like going to your local supermarket. You go in and be like, okay, I need something to deliver my, my weapon, my weaponization. I'll get my ransomware. I'll get my phishing template. I buy my list of targets who I want to send it to. And then I've got all of these technologies, all automated and usable by non-sophisticated users to attack people. And correctly identify is that piece of phishing is the delivery mechanism, it is the piece where the vast majority of threats into an organization comes through, especially as that sort of entry point. So it's worrying the fact that not only is the phishing being sort of evolved through the crimes of service, but all of the damaging sort of weapons and attachments like ransomware are also innovating and being evolved. So it's very much the reason I call, very much go towards that ecosystem over a marketplace when I describe crime as a service is because there's a high level of collaboration. It's that understanding between criminals of what works and what doesn't work against certain targets and certain protections. So who lies behind this? Where is this coming from? So I think it's a couple of factors. First of all is greed and human nature. Criminals at the end of the day are in it for the return on investment. They're looking for the most optimal way in order to get financial gain out of that. And it comes from a broad range of pieces. First of all, it's the fact they are copying a lot of methodologies from agile businesses and they see it works in normal business. It will work 
in cybercrime. The second part is sort of that drive by potentially nation states. We've seen a lot of data breaches from them and actually a lot of their tools being leaked into the cybercrime ecosystem has caused another spark for innovation. So really it is a shift change across the board and the couple of prime factors coming from sort of that nation state impact all the way down to actually this does work better, therefore more people will adopt it. And are we seeing a shift from other forms of crime? Because during the pandemic, there was clearly an inability of criminals to be out on the streets. There was some evidence that cybercrime grew. Um, but are we seeing criminals who might not have considered the cyber world moving into it because it's now relatively easy to do so? Part of it is a generational piece where obviously those criminals on the younger side have grown up with more technology, therefore it's more accessible to them. But I think it's definitely a contributing factor that because it, the, that barrier of entry to cybercrime is lower, people can get more involved. And additionally, it's the success stories out there where people hear that cybercrime is working, it is paying off, and that's attractive to those people. But then there also have to be the resources. So if we split that up, there's two groups of people at work or two groups of actors at work here. There's the people carrying out the attacks, carrying out the crimes and trying to exfiltrate the money, so, so often via cryptocurrencies. And then you've got the people who are writing the malware who may or may not be the same people. They may not be directly involved in launching attacks themselves. And there have been cases of malware leaking out from government and other agencies as well. Uh, so... Where do you think most of the effort is going at the moment? Is, is it largely the malware authors and the people looking for zero days that they can then exploit or sell on who are driving this market? Or is the, the demand what's driving the market, uh, the demand from criminal groups who want to broaden their customer base, for want of a better word? I think it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's very much the case of people offer the service and they get high uptake. Just example, over covid the price of a fishing kit went up 400 percent because there was such large demand and i think this drives other people who might have been saving their automated attacks for their own purposes to then offer it to the broader cybercrime community so i think as a whole like all of these things if if the people selling these solutions weren't there there would be no cybercrime ecosystem However, it's also the case that if it wasn't incredibly effective and is changing how criminals attack people, then it wouldn't be a case either. So I think both sides play a key role in that. So they feed off each other and it's a vicious circle. Absolutely. What, though, would motivate somebody to sell a toolkit in this way, knowing that it is a, a criminal act? And are they purely motivated by money or is there something else going on here? I think there's potentially three different angles to this. First of all, it's definitely financial. And I think that's probably the predominantly driving force is the case that they can actually earn more money from this act and potentially be safer as they're not actually the one who is using the technology to attack organizations and people. So they think they're safer. They're earning just as much, if not more money, and they can sort of sit back and have that less concern. I think sort of the second driver is potentially that hacker mindset of it's it's a game. There's a lot of credibility, that sort of respect between hackers and so on. So I think by essentially saying I'm a producer here, that makes me a sort of higher level criminal in that sense. 
and there is that piece within the ecosystem of sort of that respect and credibility and so on like there is in quite a lot of other sort of criminal gangs and organizations so they're getting a bit of a kick out of it exactly and it's very much the case of quite often especially for those on the younger side why do they get into cybercrime in the first place because they do view it like a game it's that case of can i break into this organization not to do anything really malicious just to show i can and there's evidence of this of essentially hackers from hack forums basically targeting a specific server and almost leaving their mark on that server to show others they've been there so is there almost a form of kudos that if you can get a criminal group to pick up your toolkit and use it and launch a fairly large-scale attack that perhaps you wouldn't have the resources to launch yourself, uh, in that mentality, in that, uh, that criminal hacker grouping, that actually elevates their reputation? Very much so. I, I believe it mirrors what we sort of view in the developer ecosystem from open source software. Those developers that sort of contribute to well-known projects and sort of are on the steering group for them have a lot of respect within the developer industry. I think it's exactly the same for the cyber criminals. Those people who contribute to sort of these tool sets that are causing so much damage to organizations that are successful have a lot of kudos. How much of a role does the availability of hardware through the cloud and botnets and so forth have to play? Because again prior you'd have had to invest in technology to do this now uh, you can you know, if you want to create a ddos attack th- there's plenty of places you can go to do that on the dark web you don't need to you know assemble that yourself and uh, you know likewise there are lots of mechanisms out there through cloud computing through things like cryptocurrencies to move uh, code around to uh, exchange currency and so forth i think it's a huge contributor um especially like for instance on the phishing side We've seen a huge shift in terms of what the intent of the attacker is. Like credentials are the new currency in a lot of way, where I think it's around 90% of attackers are actually attempting to scrape credentials because with those credentials, they've suddenly got access to all of that organization's resources, be that files, storage, IP, websites to perform additional attacks. I know it's one of the things we've seen on our system is actually it's gone from about 5% of attacks to 50% of attacks come from a compromised source. So essentially, they're piggybacking off well-set-up email systems with all of the authentication to then go and perform attacks on others. And a bit like how malware used to spread through lots of computer networks, we're seeing that with credential theft now. They're using one credential theft to drive more credential theft, and they can just sell these credential thefts on. And then it's almost like going to a sweet shop for the more sophisticated criminals who do have specific targets in mind because they can essentially take raw credentials from either their intended target or from their supply chain. So once someone's got those credentials, they're going to be used and reused. Exactly, very much so. So they're basically reused those credentials to either perform follow-on attacks. They'd be used to sell on those credentials to those who are interested in those credentials in particular. Or it's also the case that they actually use those credentials in order to steal that organization's IP infrastructure, use it to host and use their hardware. Yeah, so there's actually quite a lot of layers here and you need to protect all the different parts of your system in order to to hold back this um, advancement of crime. So from the phishing and the ransomware through to credentials and identity management then comes into that as well and protecting systems so people can't move laterally between them. So... How then would organisations 
protect themselves or how can they protect themselves given that the criminal groups are likely to just keep trying? They are, at the end of the day, motivated by finance, so they're going to keep trying till they find a victim. I know my sort of advice for this is always to look at it from an attacker's point of view and from sort of a kill chain point of view. So how does how would an attacker attack my organisation? What are the risks and what mitigations do I need in place? So it's very much stop them high up the kill chain. So for instance, if you can block the vast majority of phishing, fantastic, your risk massively reduces. What's the next step from that? Ransomware being deployed, have another layered security solution there. So it's very much having that layered approach to the security while still having sort of mitigations at each step. And it's essentially this sort of matureness of cyber because one of the key things for stopping attackers early is to put it very bluntly, they go elsewhere. If their initial sort of scouts of your organization shows they're not going to get very far very quickly, they're far more likely to sort of reinvest their efforts targeting someone else where they do manage to get an initial breach. So it's hardening your target. It's the old adage that if you have an alarm or a dog, the burglar's going to go to the house next door that doesn't. Very much so. And it applies that sort of even sort of a geonational level of if sort of for instance the UK becomes a much harder place to attack as a whole criminals will focus their resources at other regions and interestingly though CISOs are generally quite wary of talking about the security measures they have in place understandably because they don't want to expose intelligence which could make it harder to breach Uh, but at the same time and you mentioned national governments you mentioned the UK there is there a case that actually saying no I, I do have a dog actually could be helpful. Yes, I think it's the balance, just to take that metaphor a step further, it's the case of saying, I have a dog, but I won't tell you his name. Yeah. So basically on that, for anyone who's sort of pinging or checking your ports, everything is robust on that outside. And it's also that case of for us to be more transparent as an industry, working with the sort of bodies around sort of data breaches, working with organisations like the NCSE, because it's one of those one of those things that actually if a criminal knows that you have that policy that you will report all breaches you will follow what is compliance their concern is they could be tracked back but however if it's the case of they know from your organization that you'll do anything possible not to come forward if there has been an attack then that's a that's a much sweeter target and do you see there being a case for more um, collaboration across industries? So companies that might be rivals, whether that's in banking or manufacturing or distribution or elsewhere, uh, they need to come together and pool that information at security team level. I very much agree with that statement because I think regardless of whether organisations are in competition, be that in financial, legal, manufacturing and so on, we're all united against cyber criminals because they could completely attack any of us and take all of our organisations down in the worst case. So for me, let's not allow them to abuse this technology and exploit our organisations as individuals by unifying our intelligence at that security level. We make all of us safer and all of us more profitable. So at what point does this then become a system level risk and therefore the responsibility of government? Because you know we have... We have moved forward and the UK has moved forward quite significantly with the National Centre for Cybersecurity and some of the work that they've been doing, some other bits and some other parts that government have been playing here and across Europe as well. So you've got Europol getting quite heavily involved in some elements of cyber, such as working against ransomware. But is it something then that actually because these attacks are so damaging or potentially so damaging, there needs to be 
state level intervention and some additional work done to help organizations to protect themselves because ultimately you know you're not expected to provide your own police force yes you may have your security guards to supplement that but policing is the job of the state but in cybersecurity there's perception among business leaders that they're very much left on their own and i think that is a perception that is hopefully changing over time because we are seeing some sort of programs that are having impacts so sort of NCSC's sort of active cyber defense system, we're seeing sort of large takedowns of criminal gangs and so on. However, it's always the case that, as you mentioned, you want to secure your own home because you don't want to have to be the one to be burgled in order to have it reported. So for me, it's a combination of sort of states getting involved at that high level of that general trend, showing that intelligence and so on. However, it is on every organization to secure themselves as best as possible and for me by doing those two things you best mitigate the risk you make it unappealing for attackers to go into crime in the first place for a legislation level all the way through to sort of sharing intelligence doing takedowns of things that the state is there for however on the organization level and then day you don't want to be the one who has to be breached in order to raise it to a government level well, no, indeed you don't. And of course, international collaboration between governments is important here as well and sharing of data. Yes, very much so. When you look, though, at the back to the motivation point, which we covered on earlier, um, when you go back to that idea of what motivates people to become involved in cybercrime, are we seeing connections emerging between cybercrime groups and states or state actors or, you know, um, these organizations and outfits that sit in a gray zone between the state and the non-state actors so they may not be avowed as part of a country's intelligence service for example uh, but they're certainly not discouraged from acting and if they want to make money out of those processes along the way then some governments are happy to turn a blind eye is that part and parcel of the growth of this i think it is and i think it has been around for a very long time as well going back to even pre-technology back to sort of the days of sort of privateering and sort of pirates sort of interrupting certain nations trade and that's okay as they don't impact their own nation's trade um and this is sort of a modern modern realization of that of as long as certain criminal organizations don't disrupt certain station nation states then that's sort of understood to be allowed um but yeah from from my knowledge, it's been happening for a long time. I think the thing that is bringing that more to light is almost this propagation piece because the industry is moving ever faster. The traditional piece of it can take a year to sort of develop a zero-day exploit and fully implement it. That time scale is now shortening. And actually, the way that technology is moving faster, the fact that organizations are getting better at sort of that base security that that's kind of driving the need for criminals to collaborate as well so i think it's multiple angles there and do some countries use cyber criminal groups or tools created by cybercrime authors as an extension of policy that's the interesting one the official answer i believe is always no however based on sort of some of the things that have been either leaked 
I think it's one of those things that we can never be certain of. Does it matter to a business if you're attacked by a certain group? Does it actually make a difference to the way you would respond or the way you would advise a customer to respond uh, if they are up against, say, a nation state, one of these shadow groups, or indeed a purely straightforward criminal enterprise, whether that's an organised crime enterprise or whether that's just a, an individual criminal hacker who you know is looking for a few tens of thousands of dollars in Bitcoin? Does it actually matter in terms of how you respond? I think it does because it indicates what you should do in the future as well, as you can never assume that an attack is a one-off. So take phishing, for instance, everyone who's been in data breaches, information that can be collated through open source intelligence is likely to be in phishing attacks now and in the future, just by how these lists are propagated to criminals. However, if you're suddenly natured to a targeted sustained attack from the same source over multiple months, that's a different flavor of attack. You'd have to respond to that differently because that means it's not just a run-of-the-mill attack. It's targeted. And for me, the questions that organization needs to be asking is, why am I being targeted? What are they trying to achieve? And how far back can I sort of trace and understand who's attacking me? Because once you have those key factors, you can add more policy, more technology, and more layered security in place to completely dissuade those, those sort of targeted attacks. So you need threat analysis to understand what or who is attacking you, and then you need threat intelligence to predict who might be coming down the track to get you next. Exactly. And I think that's one thing that as an industry, we still have room to mature on is actually utilizing all sort of, of our protection to drive that intelligence of going up that kill chain of who's attacking me, why they're attacking me, really to sort of ensure that we are as robust as we need to be. Where does the responsibility for that lie within an organization? And there's a lot of complexity in how you deal with these things. But if you if you are coming under sustained attack from a criminal group or you expect a highly motivated group of actors is behind the attack on you, how should you proceed? So I think there's two main things there. First of all is essentially who owns the responsibility for this. And for me, not only is it an entire board responsibility, it's actually every individual in an organization we as humans are the first, second and third line of defense in every organization. So that for me is what I see as those organizations who are more cyber mature have a culture of cybersecurity. More users and uh, employees within the organization understand that why do we have this protection in place? Why is this policy in place? It's not just there to frustrate me in my day-to-day job doing finance. It's there because at the end of the day, it protects me from making mistakes and attackers winning essentially so for me CISOs can drive the discussions it's very important that boards buy into that but it's imperative for that information especially the why is cybersecurity so important to feed down to every layer of an organization I think to your second point in terms of I believe it was around the risk and sort of blame you mentioned that case of organizations being targeted what should they do First step there is understanding sort of the level of risk, that is sort of initial impact assessment. So that will very much drive sort of whether or not you need to do sort of redundancy plans, whether sort of that um, disaster recovery mechanism needs to come into place. But I would recommend reaching out sort of immediately if it is sort of known to be a breach, it is known to be attack, or even if it's just the case of you're under sustained attack to organisations like the NCSE. Because it is the case that quite often, if you're receiving this sort of level of sophisticated attack, others are as well. And by sharing that intelligence, 
people like the NCSC can actually step in and assist with what are best practices. You can share that intelligence in a sort of very secure way and have that assistance on what are the best actions to to do if you are under these sustained attacks. And the attacker, if, if be very clear, hopes you'll sit there and do nothing because that gives them ample opportunity to continue their attacks without being disrupted. And organisations such as the NCSC, they may have seen something similar before and they may have been able to deal with it. So they may be able to help you in that respect. Exactly. So for me, it's very much the case of immediately understand the impact, immediately make sure that your layered security is in place, make sure that staff are aware, always engage on that human layer, but also reach out to organisations like the NCSC. At the end of the day, their mission is to sort of make the UK the safest place to do business. That's the that's really sort of the three levels of the approach that I would do initially. Egress's VP of Threat Intelligence, Jack Chapman on how cybercrime as a service has developed into an ecosystem all of its own and the impact that that is having on security teams. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights. In our next programme, we'll be looking at threat modelling and how that can help developers spot security flaws even before they start to write code. That episode will be live on Wednesday, November the 3rd, and I do hope that you can join us then. In the meantime... You can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk. And of course, you can find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.